Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, William. Yeah, how's it going? I'm doing well. We are talking to William Baubin, investment partner at SOS Ventures. So William, we have a couple of common friends and actually I got this interview through the help of Gang Kanai and I sort of wanted to know a little bit about your career. How did you get started in venture capital, understanding that you have actually started from equity research first? Yeah, sure. So I started in technology investment 19 years ago. Seems like a long time. I started in equity research covering tech actually in Taiwan back in the, the mid-90s, then in the U.S. Uh, covering hardware. I came back to Asia in 2002 after the first dot-com bubble popped, joined up with Deutsche Bank and started covering regional telecom equipment and then regional internet and then China internet. After 11 years doing equity research, I got kind of tired of it. So I was number one ranked internet analyst in Asia. Uh, mostly because of my coverage of China market. So that was a good time to quit. So instead of going to a hedge fund, which would probably be the sensible thing to do, I made this huge leap over to early stage venture capital, something I, I knew nothing about, and basically jumped off the cliff. So I've been doing VC now eight years, and so far so good. I'm starting to invest in a company that suck less. So uh, getting better, getting luckier. You were in venture capital and you worked for two interesting companies. One of them is SoftBank and the other one was Singtel, which is kind of the largest Southeast Asia telecommunications company. What are the kind of lessons you have learned in venture capital during your tenure in those firms before you come to SOS Ventures? Sure. Well, when I, when I started covering internet in China uh, in 2004, the total market cap of all of the Chinese internet companies put together was $3 billion. And by March 2007, when I quit, it was all the way up to $18 billion. So I, I, I saw it go from $2 billion and $3 billion, $2.5 billion to $18 billion. And I knew I was on the wrong side of that transaction. So I switched over to venture capital. And the idea was to invest in, you know, the next Alibaba or the next Baidu, but at the very, very early stages. Fortunately, I didn't have any operating or uh, investment experience. I was more uh, an industry analyst uh, with a lot of connections. So the first four years of SoftBank, I invested in a number of different types of companies, uh, and from enterprise SaaS to mobile games to internet uh, to mobile advertising. So the vast majority of those investments that I did at SoftBank up from 2007 to 2010, we're all in mobile. And if you remember back then, uh, mobile internet in Asia was quite early. So I was a little bit early on the mobile curve because mobile didn't really start taking off uh, significantly until like 2010, 2011 uh, in China. And then after that, you start SOS Ventures and also China Accelerator, which you're also part of. Maybe you can give an introduction to SOS Ventures because I know that it has also have linkage to another accelerator that I've interviewed, that is Cyril Abus Wheeler's Hex Asia now, not Accelerator. Yeah, sure. SOSV is a $235 million evergreen fund. Our managing director is Sean O'Sullivan. So S is Sean O'Sullivan, SOS. And um, he's actually a very interesting character. Uh, he's more an entrepreneur than a VC. He basically invented internet mapping, founded uh, MapInfo in his college dorm room. Uh, took it the, in the late 80s and then took it public and eventually sold the company. So this is, it started as his personal investment 
uh, angel investment fund uh, 18 years ago, and it's really, really grown. So he started adding partners six or seven years ago, and uh, I joined as the fifth partner uh, eight months ago. So our model is very, very, very different from traditional VCs. It's also quite different from other accelerators. So we're the accelerator VC. Uh, we have five partners. I'm the fifth partner. And each partner runs uh, an accelerator. Uh, not an incubator, but uh, an accelerator. And we can go into the difference if you want later. So China Accelerator is global internet. It's not just China internet. It's not just Southeast Asia internet. We look at global internet globally. So a lot of accelerators are focused on a particular geographic area. We're sector focused and global. Zero is the partner in charge of hacks. So hacks is the number one hardware accelerator in the world. They're based in Shenzhen and they also spend time in San Francisco. Then we have uh, two indie bio accelerators, one in the U.S. in San Francisco and one in Ireland. They focus on synthetic biology. So like really cool stuff like egg whites without the chicken and milk without the cow and rhino horn without having to kill all the rhinos. So really trying to make a difference. Uh, and then finally, our fifth accelerator out of New York is called Foodex. It's for uh, food startups. And, you know, the U.S. is uh, on the forefront of uh, good stuff to eat these days, from beer to smoothies to consumer-supported agriculture. And so we have a, a global food-focused accelerator, but based in New York, which can be seen as the, uh, the, the global food capital. Uh, although people in Shanghai and Paris will probably shoot me for saying that. Yeah, so it's a bit, a little bit complicated, but what we do is we invest in startups in batches. So there's two batches per year of 10 to 15 companies across the five accelerators. Uh, we invest a small amount of money, and then we invest our blood, sweat, and tears uh, working side-by-side side with those startups in our offices for three months along with our 400-plus mentors. So China Accelerator, we have over 125, 130 mentors at this point, and our, ourselves and our mentors all chip in and try and take these companies from uh, minimum viable product or launch product to uh, scale and to monetization. So that's the, the three-month process. At the end of that, we do a demo day, a typical demo day, where we introduce these startups to the top investors from all around the world. So uh, we had about 75 VCs and also some angel investors and angel funds attend our Batch 7 demo day uh, six weeks ago. And it looks like uh, for our Batch 7 uh, of the companies, of the eight companies that are, that are currently fundraising, they all should be closing around. We're very, very happy with that. How many companies have SOSV invested in and what is the kind of track record? Sure. Because we keep on expanding, every year is different. Mm. So this year, we're investing in around 140 companies across the five accelerators, plus a few strategic ecosystem-focused uh, direct investments. But the vast, vast majority of all of our investments go through the accelerator. So it's 140 companies for, for China Accelerator. I'm doing two batches of 10 companies, so 20 companies a year, plus five to 10 direct investments. And again, these are these direct investments are, are generally ecosystem plays, uh, where it's strategic to the themes that I'm, I'm currently focused on. Our track record is, to be fair here, I have nothing to do with it because I just joined eight months ago. But uh, our track record over 18 years, we have a, a 36% IRR uh, net realized. Mm. So uh, 36% means every year uh, we make 36% after all the fees, after uh, the revenue share with the partners, uh, net, so that's the uh, net. Uh, and then realized means cash in and actually cash back. Uh, so in the last year, the, the, the fund uh, increased its funds under management 
by fifty-five million. That means there's fifty-five million dollars that uh, in, in pockets that came back from investments just in the last year and a half, and that increased our fund by fifty-five million. So our fund is evergreen. Started out as just a few million dollars, and now eighteen years later, it's grown to two hundred thirty-five million. So that thirty-six percent net that makes uh, that puts us in the top three percent of all VCs uh, performance. Uh, globally. So, is that the reason why you joined China Accelerated yeah, Subsequently I mean, Investment Partner too? Yes, yeah, there's a few reasons. You know, I had a great time as a founding managing director at Singtel Innovate. I ran China for them for four years. Um, out of the corporate VCs, probably the, the most one of the most successful out there. Uh, they've done a great job of uh, maintaining the, the independence and also uh, a really strategic role. Uh, so I was very happy with my experience there. The great thing about China Accelerator and SLS Ventures is independence. The investment decisions are, for all intents and purposes, mine. So Sean, our managing director, gives us a huge amount of leeway in terms of what we invest in and how much we invest. So the great thing is the rope that he gives us. The balance is that you know it's up to us not to hang ourselves with all that rope. We don't make money as partners until... Uh, we break even on our own investments on a cash basis. So we're just like a startup. We put, we invest every year a certain amount of money into, you know, 25, 30 startups. And until we exit uh, enough startups to break even, uh, we won't see any return personally. And all of our partners are, you know, we're not paid very much at all. Um, I'm actually running a deficit. Uh, working here, and I took a huge pay cut uh, to join SOS Ventures. But on the flip side, we're compensated for performance. So while most funds have 2% fees, so they take a fat paycheck, and then 20% of the profit, and it doesn't matter, you know, partner by partner, as long as one partner hits a big win, all the partners make money. But for us, every partner has to be profitable in order to uh, make money. And then finally, uh, the, the what really kicks it for me is the share of the profit, most uh, partners might be 7.5% of the profit or 5% of the profit. But under our model, I can, and based on my performance, get as much as 12.5%. Putting my money where my mouth is, it's a sort of an eat-what-you-kill structure. And it really focuses on putting us into the same shoes as our LP, which is Sean. And also, uh, we stand there side-by-side with the entrepreneurs. So unless we don't make, because we take a lot of common stock, unless the, if the entrepreneurs don't make money, we don't make money. Wow. So it's actually for entrepreneurs, well, by people who are also, who loves entrepreneurs, basically. Yeah. And um, to be frank, if I was a better entrepreneur, I, I, I do startups, but um, I'm, I was a crappy CEO. My first company failed horribly and my second one is is doing better, but mostly because I wasn't the CEO. Uh, I'm a much better uh, an enabler, uh, a helper, you know, a connector than I am uh, an operator. So uh, you got to do what you're good at. It's very. I had a very difficult time as an entrepreneur, mm. so I'm uh, much better suited to the VC side. I like helping people. I see. You already mentioned that China Accelerator is focused on the global internet. How many companies do they fund per batch? And usually, what's the amount of investment in each company and what happens after them demo day? Okay, sure. So, I made changes. So, I think, um, you know, accelerators uh, around the world, they have this model. And uh, there's good things about the model. There's bad things about the model. And also, you know, we're the first accelerator in Asia. We're probably the, you know, probably number one or 
uh, top accelerator in Asia. And, uh, but it, it's, it's not static. So for the current batch, batch eight, uh, the, the terms are completely different than batch seven. And who knows, batch nine will probably can completely different than batch eight. So what we do is uh, we're focused on cross-border. So, you know, we're a bunch of foreigners sitting here in Shanghai. Uh, we're not going to go head-to-head with locals and consumer photo app and win. That's not really our role. Well, our role is a bit of a meta accelerator. So we help Chinese companies go global. We help Southeast Asian companies go to the world. We help international companies come into Southeast Asia, come into, into China. So we're cross-border market entry. So it's maybe not global from day one, but it's definitely global from year one. Every single international internet company that's come into China and to some extent Southeast Asia, although Southeast Asia is a little bit easier, they've all failed. And it's not generally because of government, basically their approach. So we enable startups going global to take a lean startup approach to market entry. We have a small team. We build a localized team. We usually take the entire product that was developed for another market and throw it out the window, create a new product, a new platform, new monetization, and we test until we find product market fit. So what we end up with in Asia or in China, oftentimes it's very, very, very different than the global product. And we're doing this both for companies coming into China. It goes the other way too. Products that are developed for China, you know, no one in the U.S. would touch it with a 10-foot pole. I mean, uh, WeChat, you know, for example, they spend a huge amount of money getting 100 million users uh, internationally. The actual usage rate of those people who downloaded it is quite low. So they've got some decent traction among the Chinese diaspora, overseas Chinese. Beyond that, you know, they haven't, quote unquote, localized it for non-mobile first, mobile only market. So this is a, we have a very cross-border focus. In terms of the number of companies a year, it's uh, 10 per batch. So we do spring and fall, three months, 10 per batch. And the deal is this. The companies give us common stock for the program. So anywhere between 4 and 6 7%, depending on the stage of the company, for the program. And that's common. Then we give either a uh, direct investment into the company if they're currently raising around. So we invest alongside with the other investors in cash. And that's anywhere from 55000 to to 100000 U.S. per company. But the floor is 55000 Or if they're not currently doing a fundraising, well, we give them a note with a cap set at the target for their next fundraising. So we don't, as an accelerator, especially in Asia, where people are very sensitive to valuation, we don't want to get in the way of a company's fundraising. So our cash goes in at a 20% discount generally for the next round. The program, we get stock on a common stock, uh, you know, no right, same as the entrepreneur. Think about it like a giant advisory board position where they live with us for three to six months and we and our 125 mentors help out. And in this way, we get around a lot of Chinese investors and a lot of Asian investors' lack of understanding of uh, accelerator economics. Because, you know, in China, across Asia, there's a China, there's only five accelerators and 2,500 incubators. The opposite of the U.S., where accelerators rule and the incubators are all gone. In China, all the accelerators have gone out of business and the incubators rule. Typically, how many companies actually succeed in raising the next round after the demo day and after all these initial investments? So batch seven, which finished about uh, four weeks ago. So we had seven out of 10 come into the program with product already, necessarily launched. Maybe three out of the seven had product launched, but seven out of 10 had product built. 
uh, halfway through the program, three of the companies out of the 10 already had million-dollar-plus term sheets. And, uh, you know, so it's a pretty good record. I think what we're looking at, uh, so for right now, out of the 10 companies, uh, eight are fundraising and looking pretty sure that all eight will, will close routes. So our focus is uh, 100%. I mean, you know, if a company is not fundraising, of course, they can't raise funds. But of the companies that are fundraising, we're going. We're, we're basically going to be, in my view, batting, batting, uh, you know, batting a thousand, hundred percent. So, what are the areas of your coverage? Okay, so if you think about cross border, certain things cross border, certain other things don't cross very well. So, you know, if you've got a, a social networking app coming out of the U.S. or something like that, you're not going to bring it into China and have any sort of success because the user experience, user expectation the monetization, everything is different here. So we're, we're focused on areas that do cross border as well. So we have a huge focus on education. Uh, 20 to 30% of every batch are education companies. We have a big focus on media. You know, content is great. Content crosses. We have a big focus on mobile. So China, with 700 million mobile internet users, or 700 plus million mobile internet users, it's the number one mobile-first, mobile-only market in the world. So the innovation around mobile is not coming out of the U.S., not coming out of Europe. It's coming out of China, especially when it applies to mobile-first, mobile-only markets. So if you look at Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, South America, Chinese integration is driving those markets. It's really not innovation coming out of those markets themselves. So we're looking to take... Uh, Chinese innovation and bring it into Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, South America. So very, very heavy focus on mobile. The, the last area is a bit of an interesting area because it's unique to China, and that is mobile commerce. So if you look at Facebook, you know, it's very engaging. People around the world love it, but Facebook controls everything, and you can't do very much on Facebook. You can't order a taxi on it. You can't buy a house on it. You know, you can't buy a bottle of wine on Facebook. But with WeChat, to some extent, Line and Cacao, uh, these are platforms where you can do a lot. They're like Swiss Army knives, and they're really open. So this innovation, you know, two, three years ahead of the U.S., has opened up a huge opportunity for content-driven social commerce. Out of the 28 investments I've made in the last eight months, over half of them are around in and around uh, an ecosystem uh, driving uh, content-driven, you know, quality content, whether it be video or articles or pictures, driving into a social community that's focused on learning and engaging with each other and teaching each other around a specific area. From there, driving to purchases. And we're not talking hard sell here. We're not talking, you know, buy this, buy that. Uh, it's not, it's commerce uh, 3.0. So, you know, the U.S., Southeast Asia, all these internet commerce companies that you're seeing, that's all like old school, you know, e-commerce 1.0, 2.0, where you have a list of products there. You do search and retargeting. Commerce 3.0 is social, and it really only exists in China and some of the other countries where you've got Line and Cacao. It doesn't exist in the U.S. It doesn't exist in Europe. So the global, the global leaders for mobile social commerce are going to come out of China. So we're building up winning companies here. And then uh, I have the goal, you know, the eventual goal is, uh, you know, world domination, of course. <laughs> Of course. And, and and it's interesting that you mentioned this because I was talking to a guest, uh, Edith, which is about 
three episodes before and she was talking about taking something like a news app i think in china it's called today's headlines or even japan's version of smart news into the u.s because there's no monetizable news app apps involved as well so i'm very interested to know what is your investment thesis for me generally speaking i don't have uh you know overriding thesis i'm focused on problems Okay, and good founders. But this, this mobile commerce uh, is, is a huge focus of mine. Doing a uh, ecosystem uh, approach. Uh, so everything, so every single company that comes through uh, China Accelerator, whether they're focused in China or outside China, has two, three, four different people creating content. Mm. Um, one of our companies in Batch Eight coming up is has a tool that allows those content creators to come up with great ideas and pump out quality content quicker. So ideation for uh, social uh, content. So it's everything from creating the content quickly to then targeting the content to the right people. So Fast 7 company, Robin 8, they use machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence to tell a uh, social poster or even a, a PR or a social media agency which bloggers, which reporters, which influencers, which key opinion leaders uh, are the right ones to target their articles to. Mm. Uh, and in China, we uh, because most KOLs, most influencers in China are actually paid, we turned, uh, we're turning that, that platform, that SaaS recommendation platform, into an actual marketplace for key opinion leaders. Because when you're doing con- quality content, to, to, to really get uh, as much reach as possible, you need to reach out to key opinion leaders and influencers uh, so uh, hopefully they repost it or, or, or you give it a little juice by paying them, uh, especially in China where they're all paid, paying them to repost. The next step is, you know, once you're in WeChat, how do you engage? So we have seven mentors that focus on hacking WeChat. And now I'm talking about, you know, software hacking into it, but we're very, very focused on um, growth hacking WeChat. Uh, so one of our batch five companies, I mean, they're adding thousands uh, Neonan, uh, Neonan, you'll be the no. Neonan is uh, the number one fitness media, digital media in China, number three men's media overall. They have 2.2 billion video views just on their Yoku channel alone, just in the last year and a half. And it's all below the line, no paid marketing. Okay. And so they're pumping out tons of high quality content. Uh, and that's driving thousands of WeChat followers per day. And if you look at WeChat, WeChat's crazy. The average brand spending between five and 20 renminbi on campaigns, uh, content-driven campaigns to get a single follower. That's a dollar to $3.20 per follower. Some of the, the 10 cent campaigns, uh, it costs $9 per follower. So we're getting thousands and thousands of followers every day through high quality content without spending money. What, what do you do once they're inside that WeChat? Well, that, you know, there's advertising, of course. There's sponsorship. There's revenue share for the video. The next step is actually selling to the followers who are interested in various areas. So we have uh, two parenting and, and child rearing education communities. We have the number one wine community in China building up. We've got the uh, community uh, for lesbians, got a community, of course, for uh, young men fitness. So vertical by vertical, what do they all need? Well, they need a WeChat backend. Uh, for CRM couponing loyalty. So we invested in a company called Meanball, which helps uh, very large brands, but also our vertical startups with a complete back-end solution 
uh, for mobile commerce. And it can actually, there's their CM correction, they have a simple one themselves, or you can, you can hook it back into SAP and Oracle, and it tracks all the uh, inbound purchasing, where social campaign, or, or which article, or which KOL uh, drove the person into the community, and then how much did that person spend, what did they spend it on, what drove them to spend. We can do some really cool retargeting. It, it's not just go invest in WeChat, it's WeChat every step of the way. All the companies, you know, work together. Uh, they partner with each other. So it's a very cooperative model, uh, which is alien in China. You know, Chinese startups generally don't cooperate with anyone, but we're trying to bring a cooperative model in, cross-border market model. Uh, I learned the hard way. I can't force anybody to work together, but so far we've seen great success. So a lot of our companies, for example, share their WeChat hacks with each other. There's no instruction booklet how to run your WeChat service account. But when you have a shared community of, you know, literally 40 companies uh, hacking, uh, growth hacking WeChat, uh, the amount of intelligence that comes whenever uh, there's a new update uh, in terms of uh, tricks uh, to get better performance, uh, that becomes extremely powerful. That's interesting. So I, I saw I wanted to talk to you a little bit about media because in the US market, media is always perceived to be non-scalable and it's actually very difficult for media startups to actually get funding. I mean, only in the recent days we get things like BuzzFeed, but they are more like a aggregator distribution network. In your case of talking about like Neonan, for example, where it's a media play, what is the kind of competitive advantage in order to get media companies like this, not just in China, but all over the world? My, the second startup, the, the first one failed horribly, but the second startup I co-founded, I brought in our first client in China, which was Vice Media. And uh, we ran, basically I, I ran or I helped run along with my co-founder, Vice China for three years. And I don't know whether you're familiar with Vice. Back then they were yeah, only yeah. a $200 million company. Now they're a three billion dollar, uh, or they raise money uh, five hundred thousand million out of three billion pre. But they're they're one of they're probably like the leading uh, digital media company in the world at this point in terms of their ability to monetize great content. So we learned, you know, starting back in two thousand ten, how to take quality content uh, and to to monetize it. The issue is, till now, most folks in China have not been willing to pay for real users. So the dirty secret that everybody knows is that all uh, the advertising clicks in China are generally fake, or a large percentage of them are fake. I mean, before real-time bidding came into China, the average click-through rate on a Chinese banner was 2% versus like 0.1 or 0.15 in the U.S. Uh, now that we have real-time uh, RTB, you, you're getting click-through rates in China that are more around the global average about uh, 0.15% click-through. So it, it's that type of uh, lack of transparency and focus on uh, very few large internet publishers. So, you know, in the U.S., because of Google and AdWords, you had head, you had shoulders, and you had this long tail. Well, in China, you had a giant head. Basically, uh, the BAT is like a giant Humpty Dumpty. No shoulders, no tail, uh, because none of those guys could actually monetize their inventory. So it's been in the interests of the large guys, large players, uh, to dominate the uh, internet advertising so that uh, no co- competition uh, could sort of uh, bubble up. Uh, and on the part of the advertisers and the agencies, uh, it became a very tight circle uh, where 
you know, the advertisers had no choice. They had to buy the inventory from the publishers. The agencies without the publishers had nothing to sell. Uh, the publishers have way more power in China than publishers around the world, you know, the BAT and some of the other larger players. So you had a very different market in China than uh, the rest of the world. What's changed for media companies, and this is a key point here, is that we have commerce now. So commerce, money goes in, money comes out. You know, you put a dollar in, you get 90 cents back, you're going to stop that. You know, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar, two dollars, you know, dollar fifty, two dollars, three dollars, five dollars back. You're going to load up. So it's ROI-driven marketing. So the first time, for the first time in China, uh, you've got companies where uh, real people matter, real users, real clicks matter, uh, and that's changed things for media because you know people don't like banners. People don't generally like clicking on pre-roll. People generally hate advertising. And most advertising, especially in China, sucks. What the real opportunity for media players uh, is to, you know, go back to the old-fashioned concept of emotion through engaging content. And, and once you stir up people's juices, they get excited. Uh, they tend to do things that they don't normally do, like purchase. That's the real opportunity that we see. So we're taking the BuzzFeed, the Outbrain, the Taboola. We're, we're taking a lot of these types of companies and we're bringing that into China. Uh, it's still very early stages. We're still looking at, you know, we're still proving it out. But our social communities, you know, starting with Neonet, uh, Neonet, uh, which is uh, going to be raising the Series A soon, you know, our other 14 companies behind them, they're all leveraging real content, uh, driving real people to purchase real products. Do you, have you found any interesting differences within each ecosystem? For example, cultural attitudes between founders? Sure, sure. I mean, so just to step back a little bit, uh, when I was in equity research, I covered Japan, uh, China and India. So I was probably the first internet investor into India before there were even Indian VCs uh, back in 2005. But uh, when I switched to venture capital in 2007, I actually stopped looking at India. Uh, mostly because uh, for VC, you know, it is pretty local. You you can't expect to do well in China and do well in India when you're doing VC. So uh, I've been out of India for a while. I have been pretty active in Southeast Asia startups. But I'd say a couple things. And, and of course, these are gross generalizations, so apologies in advance. But Chinese founders are in love with being the boss. You know, they, they, they love... Uh, being their own CEO. Back in the old days, uh, everybody thought that Indian startup entrepreneurs were stupid idiots doing the internet because, you know, they had no employees, they weren't making any money. You know, these guys at Infosys and, and Tata and, and some of these BPO companies, you know, they're making millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe not hundreds of millions, but tens of millions of dollars on their stock options, you know, managing a thousand people and then their cousin is, is making no money working in a crappy office uh, with uh, 10 employees, like uh, deep from Make My Trip, struggling for years. So the, in the early days, the entire tech ecosystem thought that the Internet folks in India were idiots. Um, in China, which got started a little bit earlier, everybody loves to be an entrepreneur. Everybody is out there. They, you'd rather be a CEO with one employee than a general manager running a $100 million revenue run rate business and 500 employees in China. So to be the boss is the best. Whereas in India, it's a, I think there's more status. Or traditionally, there's been a lot more status around running a big unit, having lots of employees. 
you know, having a fancy office. Now, things have changed considerably in India, I know. Uh, you have kind of rock star CEOs, uh, internet groups, um, the, the sizes of checks that you see going into uh, e-commerce, uh, taxi sharing, to really put internet on the map in India. So uh, things are definitely changing. The, the second thing I'd say about uh, traditional Chinese CEOs, there's not a huge concept of middle management here. So you, you, you start off with a, a CEO uh, or maybe two co-founders, but usually there's one person in charge. And then if they have two employees and they have five employees and they have 10 employees. Soon they have like 100, 200, 500, 5,000 employees. But the, this con- Western concept of middle management has never really translated in. So what works in China is instead of having uh, a senior manager than middle management. What most of the successful companies like Tencent have done is basically created a giant company formed of many, many, many different startups. Three, four years ago, Tencent had 519 product groups. But the best way to think about these product groups is that they're actually separate, independent startups. They have the product, product manager, which is basically the CEO, they have a budget, they have a team, and then their, their goal is to make a business. So Tencent always got a lot of crap for killing all the startups around them. But it wasn't sort of the goal of Tencent to kill other startups. It was these product managers acting as CEO of their product groups, basically competing both with, uh, with, with anybody around them. And, you know, China's a pure capitalist society. There's no such thing as regulation. All's fair and love and war. Uh, and, and so uh, in the U.S., you would look at the Chinese, the way Chinese startups act, and you would say they play dirty. I, I think that the better way to say it is like Chinese companies play to win. Now you have Tencent uh, and you've got their QQ Mobile, you've got WeChat. Well, these are basically two product groups uh, that have grown into very large companies. And for the last two years, you know, WeChat, which traditionally hasn't made very much revenue at all, has been killing QQ Mobile, which is where all of Tencent's uh, revenue comes from. But this is great because it, you know, it gets you past the innovator's dilemma where you, you basically put yourself out of business in order to survive. That kind of culture, having a boss, a small type team, and then, and then growing and then winner taking you know, uh, winners, uh, uh, winning is what matters, uh, really kind of defines the, the, sort of the Chinese uh, startup ethos. How do Chinese CEOs lead? Uh, I'd say back in the old days, you had two types. Uh, so you had the godfather, uh, and I'm talking like the, uh, the Sicilian mafia or the, 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 the American prototypical uh, godfather mafia type. Uh, or you have the godmother. And I'm thinking, when I'm thinking godmother, I mean the, the, the fairy godmother uh, who uh, bakes you cookies and, and, and makes you feel better. Okay? So the godmother type, someone who's almost looked down like a, uh, like a god. They're so great. They're so wonderful. They're so amazing that their employees will follow them and they'll follow them, you know, through hell and high water. Uh, the godfather type uh, is completely different. Um, the godfather type leads because their employees are scared shitless. You know, they're so scared of the CEO that they'll do whatever it takes. And, and so this is the, the, the typical traditional Chinese internet CEO prototype. So Jack Ma is a, a great example of uh, the godmother type. Uh, he's, uh, to some extent, worshipped as a deity within his own company. I'm not saying it's not deserved. It's a great, it's a, it's a much better management style, 
than, say, uh, the God's father type, uh, which is a little rougher. Coming back to China, so now is Zhongguancun in Beijing still the center of attraction? Or is it areas like Shanghai, Shenzhen that is actually shaping up against Beijing? Do you see actually areas of specialization showing up in China? Like Shenzhen, you have the hardware ecosystem. And Shanghai is actually also very cosmopolitan like New York. Yeah, I'd say Beijing is hands down the sort of capital of China. A few years ago, you know, in terms of the money side, Beijing was 50% of the VC investment in China. They had about 20%. Uh, Shenzhen, Guangzhou... Uh, it's actually quite small, three, four, five percent. Hangzhou is probably three or five, four percent. So I'd say uh, on the money side, things are even concentrating even more on Beijing. You have com- companies from around the country flying to Beijing, setting up a small office, raising money in in Beijing, but keeping the the, the vast bulk of their staff uh, back in their hometown or wherever they came from. And some go to Beijing, raise money, and then the whole team goes back to wherever they came from. So I'd say the capital. If you're looking at the capital, the capital is very heavily uh, focused uh, on, on Beijing. In terms of the startups themselves, you know, Beijing has definitely got the lead on the consumer side. But you're seeing, you know, Shenzhen coming up massively on hardware. So the, the place to go globally for hardware is Shenzhen. You see uh, actually also some hardware in Shanghai. Shanghai used to be a great media and sort of video game center, more so than uh, Beijing. Um, now you see uh, Beijing have more mobile games uh, than before, um, but you also see second-tier cities like Chengdu uh, increasingly uh, seeing uh, good momentum in, in, in some of the digital media areas like uh, mobile gaming. But I, I'd say uh, Shanghai is, is definitely playing second fiddle to Beijing. Uh, beyond Shanghai and Beijing, uh, there's very little action. Uh, at least at the D.C., the companies might be based somewhere else, but they're generally coming to Shanghai. They're coming to Beijing to raise money. So you don't need to go out too far uh, on, the, on the digital side. Um, the reason why China Accelerator is based in Shanghai is Shanghai is the door to the world of China. It's the most international cosmopolitan city. Most people around China don't particularly enjoy Shanghainese people. The, the Shanghainese, uh, Shanghai and, and, and the, the folk people from around China in Shanghai are the most international. Uh, so China Accelerator as the cross-border gateway, uh, helping Chinese go international, international companies come into China. Uh, we're based here to take advantage of that. Mm. And that comes to my penultimate question. So how are the big companies, such as the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, affecting the startup ecosystem through mergers and acquisitions? Yeah, so it's been great uh, as, a, as a VC investor, because before, the only way to really get an exit is an IPO. So you, you had a winner-take-all mentality where VCs would throw huge amounts of money uh, at a very small number of companies with the hope of being the quote-unquote market leader and going public. But with the BAT and other players, you know, Chihu and some of the others, uh, getting very, very active on the acquisition side, both with early-stage investments, uh, but also later-stage investments, the opportunity to exit has really blossomed. So the reason why China Accelerator and SOS Ventures is does so well in terms of our returns is that, you know, we make money when the entrepreneurs make money and entrepreneurs generally make more money with mid-sized exits than they do with unicorns. Having a unicorn is great, but a $50 million exit without taking too much dilution is actually generally a much better deal for the entrepreneur. 
And, and that's kind of where we're focused. So we, we are optimized for 40, 50, 60 million dollar exits. Uh, we can actually do pretty well on a 20, 30 million dollar exit, uh, which is also where the, um, where the entrepreneurs tend to do better. Uh, look at Jack Ma. I mean, he's probably one of the richest guys in the world, but he only owns 5% of his company. I, we're, we're kind of optimized for, uh, the exits, uh, that can come out of an increasingly active, uh, M&A market. And the reason why the, the M&A market finally, after so many years, took off uh, is, is just because of the competition. Um, before, you know, Tencent was chat and games, and Baidu was search, and Alibaba was commerce, winning the goal here. And they all, all the three of these companies started to go into each other's territories and challenge each other. So WeChat is a huge challenge to Alibaba and Alipay. Uh, because they've got the payment. WeChat payment took off. So Alibaba is under a lot of pressure there. You know, Baidu, Baidu's search is blocked on Taobao Alibaba. So, uh, so, you know, what's, what's the, what's, so Alibaba search is actually almost as large as Baidu's search, although it doesn't get broken out or looked at that way. So Baidu, uh, you know, they've had to ag- aggressively go into mobile and they've done that through, uh, large acquisitions and also small acquisitions. And then finally, a huge trend is China going to the world. So traditionally, China was focused on the large home market. But China's home market is so competitive. I mean, it's probably one of the most competitive markets in the world uh, that actually Chinese companies uh, look at international expansion as a lot easier way to make money uh, than within China. There's definitely, they need help with cultural translation, uh, product and monetization, uh, localization. But this whole trend of going out has been quite big, especially over the last 18 months. And the BAT are, uh, this, the, the way they're going out is through partnership, uh, but it's also through strategic investment. And to some extent, in some cases, acquisition, although uh, outright acquisition by Chinese companies of international companies is uh, pretty small. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I'd say overall, um, you know, the, the, the BAT competition has been really great for the ecosystem, and it's been awesome. It's really boosted uh, VC returns in China. Mm. So uh, the, the, the thing for, you know, the listeners around the world, though, uh, is watch out. I mean, once the Chinese figure out how to localize, uh, once the, the Chinese players, you know, going into Southeast Asia, it's, uh, you know, they don't play fair. They don't play nice. They don't play at all. Uh, they're ruthless. Uh, so just think about, you know, you know, the companies like, uh, say Xiaomi or, uh, Cheetah Mobile, you know, who are, who are putting software on all the phones in Southeast Asia. You know, Xiaomi is an ecosystem player. Uh, they have one partner for each type of product, for each type of app. They pre-populate those apps onto the phones. There's no room for really anybody else. Uh, so if you're either in the ecosystem or you're out of the ecosystem. So once you control the phone, you know, once you control uh, distribution, once you have data, then uh, no one else has a chance. I'd say, um, you know, watch out. Well, that's pretty interesting. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to get you back sometime to talk about WeChat hacks. And, you know, maybe at the, the my previous question, I think there's a lot more in-depth conversations that we can actually talk about. So the last question, William. Where do my audience find you? Sure. So uh, my name is William Balbean. I'm on uh, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, Facebook on William Balbean. There's more on China Accelerator. It's uh, China Accelerator, one word, dot com. Uh, applications are open for batch eight uh, for another week. 
So again, it's the fifty-five thousand to a hundred thousand in cash, uh, plus uh, like four or five, six percent of the company for the program. We bring you into China. Uh, we help you out with mentors. Uh, Seventy mentors helping you within China. Fifty-five mentors helping you with global expansion. One of the benefits we have is a、uh, one of our companies. Uh, controls 20% of the Indian smartphone market,、uh, 15% of Indonesia, 10% of Malaysia, 15% of Thailand. So I can take your app and do push notification and promotion across Southeast Asia on a rev share basis, so no upfront money. So we have these resources just to bring to bear. Please apply to batch eight or batch nine. I'll be、uh, usually go to Tech in Asia, E27, and、uh, you know most of the、uh, major tech conferences around the region. So look forward to meeting you in person. Mm, okay, thank you so much for coming on the show. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at analyze.asia. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And please leave a ratings one star to five star. We always welcome feedback. So, William, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you.